Blog Talk Radio. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. My email address is guess. What is my email address? Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. And if you miss a show, you come in the middle, all the shows are archived. You can check them out here at Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, and other podcast-related sites. So just look up my name and the topic, and it'll pop up. And there you go. So you don't have to worry about missing anything, and you can share with friends and family. I just want to thank everybody who has donated so far to the show. You can donate via PayPal, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And um, I thank you so much for, for all your support. This morning, we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's awareness. I think it's a really important issue, and we'll find out why that is so. But I have a specialist with me because I'm not a specialist. I mean, I've done a lot of shows about it, but... I'm still not a specialist. Um, She has a a Bachelor's of Science in Biology from Yale University. Um, She received her medical degree from the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, right now she's working at a place called the Penn Memory Center, and she is hoping to get more experience with clinical trials and looks forward to working with the staff, patients, and caregivers there. Uh, Good morning, Kira. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, everybody else has to call her Dr. O'Brien, but she told me I could call her Kira because we're like that. You know, we're just like cool like that. Um, <laughs> but so let's talk about what is it. Because some people still don't know and may be confused about what is it. Can you explain in a brief definition of it? Yeah. So Alzheimer's disease is what we call a neurodegenerative disorder. So Um, It means that over time, cells in the brain are lost, and when that happens, it can affect memory and thinking. So when I say thinking, it can affect how you make decisions, how you speak, how you process visual information. Sometimes it can even affect behavior. So um, it's the most common cause of dementia, and dementia just means when you have cognitive symptoms that are severe enough that it prohibits you from doing activities of daily living like shopping, cooking, paying your bills. Um, And so uh, when we talk about Alzheimer's disease and dementia, this is different from normal brain aging. And so we want to try to identify it as early as possible so that we can intervene at earlier stages, slow down decline, and, and make necessary preparations for the future. 
Well, according to the CDC in 2020, as many as 5.8 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. That's amazing. And also, this is a really crazy thing that they say, the number of people living with the disease doubles every five years beyond age 65. What? Wow. What is that? Why is that? Is that an environmental issue? Is it stuff we're eating? Why do you think it's happening? The numbers are doubling every five years. Yeah. So a lot of it has to do with the aging population. So age, advanced age is one of the biggest risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, as time goes on, people are living longer. So we're seeing more and more of it. Um, there are a lot of other things that go into the risk for Alzheimer's disease. So there may be environmental factors. There's a lot of research looking at that. Um, uh, other health conditions, so things like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, they can increase your risk of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Um, but I would say definitely age is the, the biggest risk factor. Now, also, I read that the African-Americans uh, have a higher incidence uh, as opposed to Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites. Why would that be? Do they know why that is? So, yeah, there's um, some speculation about that. So we know that um, there are certain factors that are protective against developing Alzheimer's and dementia. So, for example, um, a good education early in childhood. And so if you think about the black population um, who experienced you know, segregation, structural racism, especially in certain parts of the United States at the South, um, there's very clear evidence that that poor um, quality of education early on in life increased their risk of developing Alzheimer's later on. And so there really are a lot of social factors that play into that. And then, again, those conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, are more prevalent in, in blacks compared to, to whites and um, Hispanics. So that also increases their risk a little bit more. So how is it diagnosed when somebody comes into the office? What do you ask? What tests do you run on a person to find out that it, if it's Alzheimer's? So I like to ask first about, you know, when did they first notice a change in their memory and thinking? And it's often helpful to talk to a family member or someone who knows them well because the person experiencing those cognitive changes may not actually realize that things are changing. Um, so it's always helpful to get an outsider's perspective. So we ask, you know, when did you notice the symptoms? What have you noticed? I ask about if there's change in their language, memory, behaviors. And then I ask about how they're functioning in daily life. Are they able to take their medications without help, prepare meals, drive, pay bills? Um, and then I also like to get a sense about just, you know, how they live their typical life. How do they spend a typical day? Because um, that mm -hmm. gives me a really good sense of how they're functioning. And then I usually run some cognitive testing. So, um, this tests different domains of cognition, like memory, language, attention. Um, and then if I do detect that they're not performing as well as I would expect for their age, we can get imaging studies and, and blood work um, to try to evaluate. 
the diagnosis is Alzheimer's now you disease. Talk- let me let me just here. Let me just stop you for a second. You talked about sure. imaging. Are you talking about like an MRI, CAT scan? What? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and what do those show when you when you look at the images? What do you see? Yeah. So I prefer MRI um, because it gives us a better uh, picture of the structure of the brain. And with Alzheimer's disease, at a certain point, it will cause shrinkage in certain areas of the brain. Um, so the, the main memory center of the brain is called the hippocampus, and we look at that. We look at a region called the temporal lobes. And so there's a, a pattern of, of shrinkage that corresponds to Alzheimer's disease. Sometimes, if it's early enough, we don't see that shrinkage, but someone can still have the changes in the brain um, uh, due to Alzheimer's disease. And so there's a different kind of scan that we can get um, called a PET scan that looks at brain activity rather than the structure. And sometimes we can see decreased activity in those regions um, associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, they talk about uh, 60 and older. Uh, Have people younger, or let me say, do people younger than 60 get Alzheimer's? Or has that been seen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we use the the age cutoff of 65 um, to designate early versus late onset Alzheimer's disease. So if you're younger than 65, we call it early onset. And early onset Alzheimer's disease, it's uh, sometimes trickier to diagnose because um, more often the younger onset patients don't have a memory issue as their first cognitive change. And so a lot of people have been misdiagnosed. It's been attributed to anxiety or something else. And then, you know, they finally make it to a memory specialist and get that diagnosis. Um, There is a stronger genetic component for early onset Alzheimer's disease, um, but that tends to be, you know, presentation in your 50s when you first start having symptoms and you have a very strong family history, so multiple people in your family affected. Now, are more men or women, which uh, sex is more affected, or is it kind of equal? Women, actually, um, are are more affected. I I believe the numbers are like two-thirds are women and about a third are men. Is that um, hormonal? Is that something to do with estrogen? Have they done any kind of research on that relation? There, There is research into that, and there's some speculation that, again, it has to do with, um, like, lifetime educational achievement and occupational achievement. Um, there is research suggesting that there may be an influence of hormones, but I don't think there's a clear link there. Mm. Now, in terms of the treatment, is it different for early onset versus, I guess, regular onset? Uh, the treatment is the same. Um, uh, so the medications that we have to treat Alzheimer's disease um, are meant to help slow down progression. We don't have anything that's going to stop it or reverse it. Um, so we use the same medications. We have a medication that's meant more for people with mild to moderate symptoms and then a different medication for people with moderate to severe symptoms. Now, I was reading um, uh, on the NIH website, I don't know if you heard of this medicine. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Adu 
Kanubab. <laughs> yeah, Adjikanamab. Yeah. Oh, oh, see, look at there. I could not even get that one out. Okay. Say it again. Say, say the name again. <laughs> Adjikanamab. See, I'm not even going to try to say that like three times, people. Okay, but but you could you could like re- replay and and listen to how she said. But um, can you talk to us about that? Are are you familiar with that at all? Because it's something that's uh, yeah. like really front front line treatment there. Yeah, it's a so it's a little bit controversial. Um, so that drug was approved for treatment of Alzheimer's disease by the FDA. Uh, a little over a year ago, and um, it's the the first approved drug of its kind because it clears out one of the proteins um, that causes Alzheimer's disease from the brain. That protein is called amyloid. Um, the reason why it is controversial is because the initial clinical trials that were testing it to see if um, it was effective the, the results were kind of mixed. There were two studies. One showed that there was a, a modest clinical benefit, and the other study didn't show any clinical benefit. So mm. ordinarily, you need both studies to show benefit, um, but it was still approved um, after they did some um, more analyses. And uh, so there were a lot of people and actually, I think it was an advisory board to the FDA who even said, we recommend you do not approve this drug. And it was still approved. Um, the, one of the big issues with this drug is that there is a risk of a side effect called um, ARIA, which um, stands for amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. And basically what that is is people who receive this drug, about a third of them had uh, evidence of swelling and areas of bleeding in the brain. So okay. it's a it's a question of is this drug really effective? And we know it has <laughs> potential harm. Um, so you know they asked that they um, test it further um, in more trials, but it's it's still available um, for use um, clinically. So. You know, people have been getting it. It's quite expensive, so not everyone can even access it. Um, and at the memory center, we haven't started administering it yet. Um, I, I think we're kind of waiting to see what the new clinical or trial data shows. Um, that being said, there are many drugs like that that are under development that even mm-hmm. in the earlier trials have shown some promising results. So. You know, it's not unreasonable to think that drugs like that could be effective, but I think we just need more data on them. Now, what's going on at the Memory Center? What is your focus there, and uh, how how could people, I guess, reach out to you, or, or can people reach out to your uh, center? Yeah, so the, the Penn Memory Center um, is... Uh, uh, group of neurologists, geriatricians, social workers, neuropsychologists um, who specialize in the diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So um, if someone is having a memory concern, 
um, you know, they would be appropriate to uh, come in for an evaluation. Um, there aren't a lot of memory centers in the United States or even in the Philadelphia region. So it, it does take a while to get in to see a specialist, but, um, you know, I would say the first step is to talk to your primary care doctor if you feel like you're having a change in your memory or if you feel like your loved one is having a change they can start an initial evaluation and then, you know, hopefully <laughs> within six months or so, you can get in to be seen by a memory specialist. Now, they couldn't just mention your name, Kira, and like I heard her on Saturday mornings with Joy Cheese and maybe get an appointment next month. I mean, really? What? We, we can't work something yeah. out because, you know, I mean, with this COVID thing, have you seen a slowdown of people coming in with COVID? Has that um, at all impacted Alzheimer's, um, if, I guess, diagnosis yeah, so and treatment? Yeah, if anything, we've seen a greater demand for um, uh, memory care. And one of the reasons for that is that with COVID, the social isolation led to, you know, often faster decline or new appearance of symptoms um, uh, because social, social isolation is, is really bad for the brain, actually. So once mm. you lose that kind of stimulation, um, people kind of decompensated. Now, what um, is that because you're not conversing with people? What about video chat that a lot of family members do, Zoom? Is it, does that not, is that not the same as face-to-face? -face? Video chats is good, too. Um, but even so, you know, a lot of people who were, you know, active in book clubs, church groups, even just going out to the grocery store, like all those activities stopped and, so, um, and, you know, some of the uh, older folks might not be very tech savvy. And so, um, you know, accessing those digital platforms might be trickier for some. Now, you know, it's interesting. The pandemic brought up the fact that there are introverts and extroverts. And the introverts actually were, like, happy kind of. That, that they were able to stay home and didn't really have to interact. In terms of Alzheimer's, has there been any research about people who are introverted, extroverted, and the impact of Alzheimer's on, on those individuals? That's a fantastic question. I don't know, but I'm going to look that up when we're done chatting. <laughs> okay, look that up. Look that up. I, thought, I mean, I think that's interesting because if we're talking about stimulation, but if you know, everybody's not the same. Sometimes stimulation is too much and people get anxiety or and other uh, issues when they have too much stimulation. And, and, and I, it also now brings me to the issue of why people have autism. Um, and I wonder, does there, is there any um, connection with autism and maybe a rapid Alzheimer's, like a more rapid decline because certain parts of the brain are not being use more than others? Um, is that something so that's I, been researched? I think there is a link between um, like early childhood learning disability and development of dementia. I don't know necessarily mm -hmm. that it's associated with a more rapid decline. Um, okay. Though I have seen just anecdotally, so like there's no evidence behind this, but with some of my own patients, people who have um, things like attention deficit disorder, 
um, or uh, you know other uh, learning disabilities do tend to have like a sharp decline in cognition once the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease start showing. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you could kind of explain that by the fact that, you know, normally someone might have other brain pathways to compensate for the changes that occur when you have Alzheimer's disease, but those folks might not have those compensatory pathways. Well, I want to mention that the um, Alzheimer's Association has a helpline. It's a 1-800-272-3900. Again, a 1-800-272-3900. It's a 24-7 helpline. And people could reach out there if they need assistance, if they themselves think they have are developing symptoms, or if you have a family or, or friend and, you, and you're concerned about them. How, let me ask you this, Kira, what can family and friends do? Because it can be sensitive to, to tell somebody that, you know, you're, you're having some issues and we notice some, you know, some people are like, what are you talking about? Nothing's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fine. Um, so how do, how do you approach somebody and let them know maybe they should get help? Do you have any suggestions on that? Yeah, so I, you know, first it's always good to assess what they think about the situation. So rather than say, I think you have some changes with your memory, say, what do you think about your memory? How do you feel about it? Have you noticed any changes? Like ask them for their perspective. And then mm. once you gauge that, you you kind of know how to how to approach it. If they acknowledge that there have been some changes, then it's easier to say, well, I think I've noticed some changes too. Maybe we should go see, you know, a doctor to see if there's anything that needs to be looked into. Um, it is very common for patients not to notice the changes. Um, and it, there's a, a term for that called agnosia or lack of insight. And when that happens, honestly, it can be very tricky. <laughs> um, so I would just recommend, you know, saying, you know, maybe it's worth just getting your memory checked out. As everyone gets older, you know, memory can change. So why don't we just get an evaluation just to see? And that's how you can start that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the cool things that the Alzheimer's Association has is a financial and legal planning section for caregivers. Um, I think that will be really helpful for for caregivers to see that it has links for insurance, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, tax deductions, uh, planning ahead for legal matters. That, I think, is probably really important because, say, your spouse and, you know, making sure you have a will and um, other documents that are needed because if the person uh, maybe just has some other injury, you know, they could fall or break a hip or get in a car accident and, you know, then, you know, where do you go from there? And, um if you're if you're a child and you're helping being a caregiver as a parent, you know those are also helpful links there. Again, that's on the Alzheimer's Association on their website under caregiving, and um, I think they also have something about respite because that's something that can happen that caregivers get burnout. Have you heard of that burnout of caregivers, um, Kira? Yeah, absolutely. It's very common. I see that a lot um, in the families of my patients. And so, um, yeah, the Alzheimer's Association has wonderful information on support groups and respite for caregivers. Um, It's really, really helpful. 
Yeah, respite is um, where somebody can come in and, and take care of your family member for you mm-hmm. while you actually get some re- relaxa- uh, relaxation and, and rest because you can't um, – the whole oxygen um, thing where you put your mask on first before you help somebody else, you got to take care of yourself first before you can care for your other family members. And a lot of times people just go, 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 don't take a break, and that can – cause other problems. I mean, you can forget stuff because you're so tired. (laughs) doesn't mean you have Alzheimer's, but, you know, it it can happen. Um, So let me just mention their 1-800 number again. Uh, Let me go to their thing here. They have a 24-7 helpline, 1-800-272-3900. And, uh, Kira, what's the memory centers? Is there a number? What's your website? How can they reach out to you guys there? Yeah, um, so our clinic number is 215-662-7810. And then our website is uh, headmemorycenter.org. And the website has a lot of great um, educational information as well as information on our research programs. The Pen Memory Center is associated with um, several research studies uh, for people who are interested. Well, this has been great, Kira. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. I think we shared a lot of information. Again, there's the CDC, there's NIH, uh, the Memory Center, Alzheimer's Association. All these places have a lot of great information about Alzheimer's, uh, but particularly the Alzheimer's Association, they have the helpline, they have the caregiving information, because, you know, people focus a lot of time on the patient, but not the people who are caregiving, so I I really wanted to bring that up. Um, But thank you so much, Kira. Thank you to the Memory Center for connecting me with to you. Um, uh, Shout out to them. (laughs) Um, And uh, I hope you have a, a great weekend, okay? Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with Dr. O'Brien, but Kira to me because, you know, she gave me permission to call her Kira. But uh, she's from the Penn Memory Center, and we were talking about Alzheimer's and uh, what it is, the symptoms. If you missed any part of the show, you can check the archives. Show it'll be archived in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You can check out the archive show. Um, I have a wonderful guest uh, coming up next, um, an author. So you want to stay tuned, and um, hopefully I will see you at the next show, or next Saturday, or the Saturday after that, or the Saturday after that. If you want to email me, email me at SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. Also, check me out on Twitter at JoyKeys, on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with JoyKeys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with JoyKeys. All right, you guys have a great weekend. Wonder if you should get tested for colorectal cancer? Well, it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., so if you're 50 or older, it's time. Screening helps find precancerous polyps so they can be removed. Remove the polyp, prevent the cancer. Did you know there's more than one screening test? Talk to your doctor to find the one that's right for you. No more excuses because colorectal cancer screening really does save lives. A message from HHS and CDC's Screen for Life campaign.